get some of this. It's that time again for In This Corner with Brian Campbell, the MMA edition, as we count down the hours and minutes ahead of Saturday's long-awaited UFC 214 card from Anaheim, California. Believe it, bros, it's time to climb back in that cage because we back, baby. I back. Trust me, I back. It's the Brian Campbell coming at you with another black market dose of the one drug you won't need to worry about during a six-month USADA testing pool. Yes, I'm talking about that performance-enhancing audio. We don't just sing it on this podcast. We bring it, and today is no different as the voice of the UFC John Anik stops by to get you pumped up for Daniel Cormier, John Jones, part two. And talk about his own rise to the top of the profession from the UFC to, to UFC from the ESPN MMA Live days. Also excited to welcome in my CBS Sports bro hammer, Brandon Wise, to look back on Chris Weidman's victory at UFC Long Island and look ahead toward a loaded pay-per-view main card at 214 on Saturday. But before we get this combat sports carnival in gear, I want to remind you to let your voice be heard when it comes to in this corner whether you like what you hear or maybe whether you're a little bit more like gsp i'm not impressed by your performance head on over to apple podcast subscribe rate review shout us out on social media using that hashtag in this corner heck slide in them dms or or swan dive if need be on Twitter at BCampbellCBS. We'll answer your questions on a future episode. Be sure to check out our other offerings this week on the ITC featuring our boxing show where MMA legend Pat Militich breaks down Conor McGregor's potential paths to victory in his August 26th boxing match against Floyd Mayweather. We'll also have a lively discussion with colorful former welterweight champ Victor Ortiz. On the pro wrestling side, hit up our instant analysis show from Sunday's WWE Battleground crowd. And this week in WWE, the midweek edition, we're believing. You can expect to hear a lot about this incredible G1 Climax tournament going on overseas with New Japan Pro Wrestling. But without any further ado, let's throw it over to the hardest working man in combat sports, the voice of the UFC, John Anik. Enjoy. Very fired up to welcome in this corner a, a guy I've been up and down the road with a lot in the past. My man, I'm talking Anik the man, John Anik, the voice of the UFC. J.A., of course I want to talk to you ahead of a card like UFC 214, Jones Cormier. I just want to talk to you about life, too, going back to the MMA Live heydays of, of when we used to roll back. And how's everything going, man? Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, BC. It's always good to be with you. And I'm going to sound like the president of the Brian Campbell fan club. But I feel like for 10 years, I've known maybe what not a lot of people did about you and your encyclopedic nature when it comes to combat sports. So it sounds trite to say the cream rises to the to the top, but you're doing great. And, and I got to say, I'm not the least bit surprised. So thanks for having me on. And needless to say, man, you know, I feel like when Conor McGregor's not involved, John Jones, Daniel Cormier, this is the biggest fight that we can make right now, short of maybe Ronda Rousey, Chris Cyborg. So I'm juiced to get to Anaheim early tomorrow, man. That's what I'm talking about. You're putting me over. I'm about ready to put you over. Incredibly proud of what you've done in the six years since joining UFC. I mean, you're blowing up like I thought you would, J.A., but like Biggie says, I I've called the crib. It's still the same number, still the same hood, still the same guy. I know we're going to talk about all things Jones Cormier in a minute, but kind of been, you know, it's been a whirlwind run for you to – to join the UFC to really make the way up the ladder to get to, to become the top of your profession. I, I don't want to turn this into a Tony Robbins type podcast, but having worked alongside you, I I know along with the, the the talent, there's a sick work ethic behind the scenes that helped you get to where you are today. So, you know, I don't want to blow up your spot and suggest that we have now begun the John Anik era. Welcome to the Machida era. 
No, no, wrong era, Joe. The John Anik era. But can you give us an idea of of what that hard work's like? What is the prep like for a for a broadcast like UFC 214 when you are the guy, you are the voice of the UFC right now? Well, I appreciate you saying all that, and, and certainly I took this job with the hope that I would eventually be able to succeed the number one guy who at the time was Mike Goldberg and become the number one voice on play-by-play. I, I do take it show to show, right? It's not like there's any fancy press release announcing me as the lead voice, so I got to earn this seat uh, every show out, and, and it's a privilege to, to sit next to Joe Rogan, and I understand that, and I don't take it lightly. To that end... The prep is pretty crazy, and I try to think about these NFL play-by-play guys that go 17 straight weeks, and that makes me feel a little bit better. But when you're in a situation like this where you have the back-to-backs or the back-to-back-to-back, the preparation is a little bit condensed. We just came off of the big Fox show, 26 fighters on that show, 24 fighters on this show. So within an 8- or 10-day span, you have to prep 50 fighters, and It is pretty daunting, especially for some of the lesser-known guys, and you're searching the Internet to find film that isn't there. So, you know, we lean on our research department, certainly, as you and I have done throughout our careers when it comes to the bios and some of the background information. But like today, I will talk to all 24 fighters on the fight card, three minutes apiece, including John Jones and Daniel Cormier, and that'll give me a good insight into where they are during fight week. And sometimes it's just a matter of, Hey, John, I'm sorry, you know, about your mom passing away a few weeks ago, or right. are you more emotional during this fight week? Or, or asking Daniel Cormier, are your kids with you right now? Like sometimes it's the anecdotal stuff and just the family stuff that is a, a different lens through which to attack them when you're approaching them in an interview. But it's exhausting, man. I mean, I was watching Vulcan Uzdemir footage, you know, before I came yes. on with you. And I always say, dude, if a fight car gets delayed five hours, any good play-by-play guy is going to be able to make use of that time. So sometimes you feel like there's never enough time. And again, we're just trying to shine a positive light on all these guys and and, and give the guys who are on Fight Pass or Pay-Per-View you know, as much shine as humanly possible. Well, I, I learned a lot from watching you in the early days developing the John Anik no-card system. Used it myself, worked a couple ESPN Friday Night Fight broadcasts to sort of get my thoughts in order, get the backgrounds of these guys in order. Do you think that you've developed a, a trademark style at all? Is that anything in your mind when you go out there to do your job? Are you, uh, are you, do you, are you knowledgeable of how you're different from other guys, other combat sports play-by-play guys? Well, I think the one thing that maybe separates me from guys is that I'm not very sticky. I don't ever plan my fight-ending calls. Certainly when Chris Weidman fights on Long Island, I think about what type of moment it could be were he to finish Kelvin Gastelum. But I never pre-rehearse or even think too much about what I'm going to say. I really try to respond organically. And I try to stay in my lane. You know, certainly I'm trying to execute Dana White's vision, and that is a very different challenge than in other play-by-play spots I've been in. But I try to stay in my lane and lean on my preparation, and ultimately I think it has been my approach to preparation and my articulation that got me here. So I'm trying not to deviate too much from what got me here. Um, But again, you know, I really do feel like The preparation, I think, is what really can set certain guys apart. And again, I'm on vacation in Connecticut with my with my kids for a couple days here, but I'm doing fighter calls all day. You know, this is a pay-per-view week and and I certainly treat it as such. But, uh, you know, I learn a lot from other guys. I mean, I've even told Todd Grisham, who's come on board in the UFC, my system is not perfect, right? It works for me. Sometimes it's pretty exhaustive. I think there might be a more efficient way to prep these shows, but it's worked for me so far and I'm not going to fix it until it breaks. 
You know, it's got to be a cool feeling, though, when, you, when you're sitting at home and, and you come into a random UFC commercial and you're hearing your voice calling these spots. I mean, separated from J.A., the professional, the real guy, it's got to be a great moment. Do you have any favorite call or any favorite soundbite that surprises you when you do hear it and you're like, hey, not bad, not bad in that moment right there? Well, it's funny because to me it sounds like my identical twin brother because as some of your listeners and viewers may know, I have an identical twin. So when I hear my voice, more often than not, it sounds like his but yeah, it's definitely thrilling when you hear your voice in a pay-per-view spot. And I don't know if there are any particular calls. I mean, I think an Edson Barboza finish I did recently, and I said something like, you know, another highlight for the real, and it just sort of surfaced organically in that moment, and I was pretty proud of that one. But dude, when I go back and listen to some of my first calls, 2011, 2012, or even back in 2009 with Bellator, cringe-worthy, my friend. So you're trying to evolve, you're trying to get better. And I feel like I've learned a lot from just the job. And, you know, I'm coming up on my 101st UFC play-by-play nice. telecast. So, you, you know, you learn from the repetitions. But, man, when I go back and watch those first shows, bro, uh, I had a lot to learn. And I was probably worthy of all the criticism that was sent my way those few nights. Well, I, I can imagine a, a, of being, you know, being your biggest critic when you go back, there probably is a lot that jump out to you that others might not see. I did want to hit you one up about that ESPN MMA Live days. That show has almost retained a like a real positive level of nostalgia. When you mention it around MMA fans, they still kind of pop. It was sort of, you know, there were other shows at the time maybe like it, but it, it was ESPN's first real foray into that. How do you sort of look at the legacy? Because the moment you stepped away from MMA Live, it, you know, for all intents and purposes, did end that era. It did die for, for that format of what it was. What do you think that that show captured in that moment of time? Well, I do get chills even when you invoke it because it is something that all of us involved, and I know maybe you to a lesser extent, but you had your fingers on the on that show a little bit. And I think it's something that we're all very proud of because there just wasn't a news and information show out there on a major network or even on a digital streaming service like at MMA Live. And your current boss here in Portland, I think, deserves a lot of credit. And the late Anthony Mormile, certainly a great mentor for a lot of us. But those two guys along with the late John Zare as well, had a vision for taking a news and information show and mixed martial arts to the public. And certainly there was inside MMA at the time, but we just felt like we approached the sport from an ESPN perspective and just gave it the treatment that the NFL and other sports were getting that it wasn't getting. So it's been a little bit disappointing, I guess, to see it sort of dissipate when a lot of us moved on and many of us going now to work for the UFC. But I still am holding out hope, man, whether it's at 2 a.m. or in prime time, that eventually we'll see MMA Live back on ESPN2. Because, again, as I've said repeatedly, when this generation turns over and the kids who are growing up with mixed martial arts start to become employees and decision makers, I think the sports popularity is only going to continue to grow. So I'm still holding out hope that in some way, shape, or form, MMA Live will be resuscitated you know, in the not-too-distant future. Well, final walk down memory lane. Let me play 15 seconds of nostalgia here. I don't know if you remember it. Shout out to this fan back in the day, 2010, Man 3321 on YouTube, created the most <laughs> infectious MMA Live theme song you've ever heard. Here's a sampling. Where do you get MMA news with so many places that you can choose? I tell them only one show brings it every week and it's got three hosts. No one else can beat. I'm talking Eddie, the man. Don't text and drive. He leads the crew and exudes a vibe. J.A., what do you feel when you hear that? I mean, you're such a legend, Campbell, trotting that out today on the podcast. No, I mean, it, it, it feels great. I mean, I remember the time that that was released. And when when fans do stuff like that, I think it 
really makes you feel like your reach goes pretty far and that you're really making an impact in the lives of a lot of fans who have such an appetite for this sport and analysis of it and not a lot of places to turn. Certainly you fast forward now almost 10 years later and it's crazy to think, but there's a lot more information out there. I mean, even when we're prepping fights right now, the world is your oyster, right? I mean, even if you don't have the chance to talk to a lot of these guys, you are very prepared when you make that walk on fight night because of how much information and how many websites are devoting full-time coverage to it now. Even look at your situation in South Florida. So there's a lot more coverage than there was back then. But yeah, man, when I hear that track, <laughs> it, uh, it bring, brings back only the fondest of memories, my man. All right, John, let's get to this weekend. 214, Jones-Cormier, too. I mean, it's a you know third, fourth, fifth time's a charm maybe for this rematch. Finally seeing the light of day. To separate ourselves from the journalist side and just be a fan for a second, I'm really fired up for this fight. It's one of those, I just want to see what happens. Like, you're so invested into the storyline. I kind of compare just the fan in me, the feeling that I've had in rare moments in the UFC where I'm just so invested to just want to see it. It reminds me of maybe Silva Sonnen 2 at UFC 148 in 2012. Maybe that Lesnar-Carwin feeling, that pure raw UFC 116. I just want to see what happens. How do you rank this rematch in terms of anticipation under that same way of thinking? Yeah, I think the UFC 148 show is a good comparison because I remember being there at the weigh-in and thinking to myself on the inside, like, does it ever get any bigger than this? And I think you can argue UFC 214 actually is bigger and that this rivalry between John Jones and Daniel Cormier, not necessarily bigger than Anderson Silva, Chael Sonnen, but it is certainly right along that level. And I just am really excited to see them close the octagon door behind these two guys. I think it's very interesting, though, when you – Look at the recent schedules of these guys. You know, Daniel Cormier has fought four or five times since that first meeting between them in January of 2015. John Jones has only fought one time, and it was a fight against Ovin St. Preux and a performance against OSP in which he was roundly criticized for. Now, I was far less critical of John Jones in that fight than a lot of other people, but I think it's going to be very interesting to see where John Jones is, especially early on in this fight, to see if he can bottle the emotions and just pick up where he left off as the consensus greatest mixed martial arts athlete of all time. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. It's like trying to figure out who benefits more from that two-year break, right? It's from, from facing each other, from Jones really being being a part of the sport outside of that OSP fight. You can look at it as, you know, Cormier's two years older, two years more of war, worth of wars, you know? I mean, you know, got got rocked against Anthony Johnson for sure and came back in both fights. That The right. Gustafson fight was an absolute war. But Jones not looking the same in that OSP fight, whether you chalk it up to a late replacement, you chalk it up to rust. There's going to be more rust on this fight night. Laying out those both sides of the argument, can you kind of guess who might benefit from this much of a gap between the two fights? Well, it's a good question. And Daniel Cormier is 38 years old, but... He is healthy, I can tell you that. I mean, he had a great training camp. I think the thing for DC, he was just hoping that when this rematch materialized, that he would be healthy and in shape and ready to go. So every box has been checked on the Cormier side. So from that standpoint, I'm very encouraged. Let's also not forget, this is one of the toughest, smartest fighters 
to ever grace the octagon. He's 19-1, and one, only lost to John Jones. He's never been finished, as we saw in the Rumble fights and certainly in the Gustafson fight. He is a very hard guy to put away. And when I talk to John Jones later today, I'm going to ask him, is a decision win over Daniel Cormier enough, right? I mean, does that give you the finality and the closure to this rivalry that you're looking for? And I think John's going to say, no, I need to go out and finish this guy. Right. He was unable to do that against Ovin St. Preux. And I think a lot of people do chalk it up to ring rust or octagon rust. His layoff at that point was 15 or 16 months. I will say, though, in that OSP fight, right, 25 hard minutes, and Jones walked out of that octagon, Brian, against a very tricky opponent without a scratch on his face. So at least defensively, John wasn't even touched in that fight. So when you talk to Brandon Gibson and John Jones's coaches, they feel like it was a clean performance. I mean, it had everything but the finish for them. So I think it's going to be interesting, as I said, to see how John approaches the early portions of this fight. Does he exercise some patience or does he just try to go absolutely nuts in taking out his rival? I think it's very competitive. I think for DC, this is the best chance he'll have to beat John Jones to get him in a period of his career where he has fought twice since April of 2014. I mean, the guy has to have some rust. You know, guys like Dominic Cruz are very dismissive of ring rust and they feel like it's only what a fighter makes of it. And they're very dismissive of that as a mental factor in the fight. But again, I do feel like to dismiss it as a factor completely is a little bit ignorant. And uh, I don't know. I think the first five minutes are going to be very telling as to how the rest of this fight will shake out. Definitely, definitely. Interesting way you break that down is, is a decision win enough if you can get it? That's a good way to look at it. When you look back at the first fight and try to sort of pick out clues on how that might inform how we look at what the, how the rematch will play out. I mean, you talk DC's talked a lot about he had the wrong mindset in that fight. He was too emotional. He was following Jones around, almost trying to get him back with each punch for all of the, the heated trash talk between them how much do you think though in the first fight the idea of Jones becoming the first guy to take DC down and sort of like own him at times on the ground how much do you think that played negatively from a mental standpoint in DC as that fight was playing on because it almost took away a clear path of Cormier you know in his in the strengths of his skill set if he was going to have a chance of victory right it's it's a good point and when you talk to people who train with Daniel Cormier they are just blown away by the strength, right? And even when you watch this guy on a basketball court shoot a 15-footer, this is an elite athlete, right? Don't let the frame fool you. And when people have a chance to roll with this guy and train with him and try to get out from underneath him, they say, you just don't understand how physical an athlete this is. So yeah, I think for DC, it was a little bit discouraging. I mean, I think few guys have as much respect for John Jones and his skills than Daniel Cormier. But going into that fight, I don't think he was expecting that it would play out that way on the ground. The other thing I'll say though, BC, and again, this is just one man scorecard, but I had DC up two rounds to one after three. He was forced to take the entire fourth round off because he had very, le very little left in the tank. And then when the fifth round rolled around, he just didn't have much, and he tried to sort of ratchet it back up, but, you know, the cardio just wasn't there, and his body wouldn't necessarily do what his mind wanted it to do, and John dominated rounds four and five. But the notion that, that, that this fight was not competitive uh, is just not accurate, especially after 15 minutes. So I thought DC got a lot of things, things done. I think he's going to have to be a little bit more conservative against John this time around. I think he's really going to have to pick his spots on the feet. And again, with the timely takedowns and try to use John's aggressiveness against him, I think that'll work well for DC. But I do think if he really goes back and breaks down the film, he will derive some confidence out of the way he 
handled himself in those first few rounds. Definitely, definitely a good point. In that early going, he you know he was even in the first two rounds for my money. John, a big part of this narrative of coming into this fight, it's a narrative we, we had heading into UFC 200 around John Jones. It's like, will he ever clean up his act? But I got a little bit of a side take here. Like, outside of the real-life circumstances that are affected when Jones has these transgressions outside of the cage, I just want to talk about from a fighting perspective, I'm actually a bit nervous at the idea of him cleaning up his act too much. And I know it's sort of a weird way to look at it, but look at Manny Pacquiao over the second half of his career. Was never the same fighter after giving up some of those vices, the gambling, the womanizing, when he took on a much you know, safer spiritual turn in his mid-30s, a smart move in his real life. Didn't have the same killer instinct in there. And I know it's it's not an you know, apples to apples comparison here, but I almost feel like Jones is has a shot at being a more dangerous fighter in the long run if he's just honest about who he is. And from a marketing and promotion sense, a pro wrestling sense, he's a heel. He's not the Bible thumping straight edge guy that we or maybe he thought he was on the original rise up. There's an edge to believe to him in the cage that I think makes him fighter when his per- makes him a better fighter when his personal life has a little bit of an edge to it. Do you give any credence to my wacky theory here? No doubt about it. I love the line of thinking, and you can be sure that John Jones has already planned an epic post-fight party. He has already tweeted about it. It is going to happen outside of the United States. He has said, "I want to make sure there's no TMZ or anybody else around." So you can be sure that if John Jones beats Daniel Cormier, he is going to get back to his partying ways. And I do agree. You know, sometimes you'll hear a guy like Dominic Cruz say, I like to struggle with the weight and I perform better mentally when I have to go through that weight cut. And sometimes I feel like John Jones, it's a source of confidence that he can party and still be the best fighter in the world. I do believe John Jones can turn the corner and stay clean and fight three or four times a year and have a nice five or seven year prime on the heels of, of some of the past transgressions. But I think that's all going to happen by him staying true to who he is. I don't think that he's going to clean up his act and be some long-term beacon of sobriety uh, who becomes the greatest mixed martial arts athlete of all time. I think he has a great chance to go down as the greatest of all time and still do what has got him here. Uh, I just think that, you know, when it comes to Cialis and certain things like that, I think you'll see him clean that stuff up. But uh, I think John Jones is going to continue to party. And the, the thing about the heel thing is interesting, too, because both of these guys have sort of embraced being a heel. And it's amazing for those of us who know Daniel Cormier as well as we do to see him be vehemently booed in all of these settings. And I know DC sort of likes being the heel a little bit, but my prediction is that when these two guys walk with this crowd at the Honda Center in Anaheim, California, Saturday night, I think John Jones and not Daniel Cormier is going to have the crowd. I guess we'll see how it plays out. But I think Jones is going to be the guy who is cheered, and I think Cormier actually is going to be the guy who is booed. That's interesting, and I actually think you're right. It's almost like fans only care about, and maybe this is a good thing, only care about ultimately with Jones what happens between those cage walls. It's like they can give a pass to everything else because despite his wild lifestyle at times, it hasn't changed his true intangibles as a fighter who can keep that mental focus no matter what's going on, and a fighter with a championship Hall of Fame all-time great level backbone to adjust to adversity. I mean, that some guys can't keep that part of the game up when they aren't as focused outside of the cage. That That's a real testament to his legacy. But I did want to ask you about Cormier's legacy, because from my standpoint, a victory over Jones 
allows him to make the kind of leap that he just can't make without one, right? It's like he's 19 and one. Should he go 19 and two? You say no disrespect. You lost twice to the greatest fighter maybe of all time, yet you pretty much dominated two divisions. You won the Strike Force Grand Prix, all that great stuff, but there's still that John Jones size hole in the resume. Like there's still the Evander Holyfield scenario while Mike Tyson was away at prison, if you will, where there's people that will never give him the real due as a UFC champion. I think that DC can almost attain MMA immortality with a win here. You think I'm pushing that too far? Not at all. I mean, I already think his future's in the UFC Hall of Fame, and were he to win this fight, then he's like a first ballot guy, even though we don't have that type of standard in the UFC Hall of Fame. And also, Bri, if he wasn't 38, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this guy would move back up to heavyweight and become a two-division UFC champion. He compares very favorably to the top six or seven in the UFC heavyweight division right now. So I think he is a criminally underappreciated guy who doesn't get credit for the body of work that is 19-1 and one right now. How many wins does John Jones have over Anthony Rumble Johnson? Zero, right? DC has two, and Anthony Rumble Johnson, for my money, is the biggest power threat in any division to ever step foot inside that octagon, and DC beat him twice. You can also make the argument that DC's split decision win over Alexander Gustafson was more dominant than John Jones's yes. win over Gustafson. So the body of work is there for DC, and certainly were he able to put a capstone on this career by beating a guy in John Jones, who I think is the best to ever do it, then I think you can make an argument that Daniel Cormier crazy as it may sound to some, would be the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time at 20-1 and one with a win over John Jones. Wow. that You know, it's weird because that's almost the same argument we had for Dan Henderson heading into, what was that, the, the forgotten UFC card. Was it 151 or 152, the one that, that fell apart? There was almost that same kind of argument where Hendo, all-time great. But if he beats Jones here, you could make the case that he's the greatest of all time. I guess beating a guy like Jones, that's the only way to sort of get into these conversations. I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah, as short of doing what Demetrius Johnson has done, which is to just clean out a division over half a decade and each one more dominant than the previous one, with the exception of that Tim Elliott fight. But yeah, you can do it with longevity or you can do it by beating a guy like John Jones, who is undefeated, right? So John Jones has, other than the Gustafson fight, you know, he's never really been in any perilous spots, was a little moment there against Vitor Belfort. He was down, I thought, again, as I mentioned, against Daniel Cormier. But yeah, dude, DC beats this guy. Uh, immortality is the best way to describe it. And I think for Daniel, too, he feels some of that, right? He hears us broadcasters, and again, he's one of my broadcast partners, but he's watching us, I'll tell you, this weekend on Fox and hearing me say, Oh, the consensus greatest of all time, and he shoots me a text. You know, he doesn't like that narrative. He feels like he's one of the greatest of all time, and he's never painted with that brush. So if you want to be painted with that brush, go beat John Jones Saturday night, and you'll never have to worry about that again. Uh, great stuff. No question about it. Two quick ones on the way out here, J.A. You're, you're right in the middle of it with the UFC, so you touch this discussion that's taken over the sporting world. Of course, that is Mayweather, McGregor, August 26th, the boxing super fight. It's like you have boxing fans saying, I hate this thing. Get it away from me. You're insulting my sport. I feel like the MMA side is like, we made it. This is great. How do you yeah. react to the whole circus notion of this fight coming together when, you know, a month ago or two months ago, right before it was announced, I would have said it's never happening. Stop the presses what was your reaction to this well I'm a little bit torn and certainly I defer to you on all boxing matters even when I was hosting the mouthpiece boxing show in Boston back in the day I would get to Bristol and I was picking your brain and looking for show topics so I'll preface everything I say by the fact that I defer to you on all boxing matters 
I'm a little bit torn here because even though certainly my heart is with Conor McGregor, I've actually covered more Floyd Mayweather fights, if you can believe it, than attended or covered Conor McGregor fights. And I, I would hate to see Floyd's legacy go to 49-1 and one by losing to an MMA fighter who is 2-1 in his last three MMA fights. So part of me would hate to see Floyd's legacy go down by virtue of a loss to an MMA fighter. All of that said... I am in the in the Dana White camp of those who are just done doubting Conor McGregor at this point in time. Now, that doesn't mean I give Conor more than a 10% chance to win the fight, but I am far less dismissive of his chances than a lot of boxing experts and other purists out there because I have seen this guy defy odds and beat wrestlers presumed to be his kryptonite when he has a torn ACL. I have seen him rise to the occasion on fight night and deal with pressure better than any professional athlete I've ever seen. So certainly he's up against it. It's a huge ask for him to win a round against Floyd Mayweather, never mind finish the guy. But I also think there are a lot of unknowns and variables presented to Floyd just by nature of fighting an MMA fighter. Like, Brian, what stance is Conor going to come out in? Is he going to have an open stance? Is he going to raise his right hand defensively? Floyd doesn't even know what stance Conor's going to come out in. So I just think there are a lot of different variables that Floyd might have to deal with, particularly early on, that make this a more competitive fight. Right. You know, you look at the only guy to really, really have success against the well, sustained success against the welterweight version of Mayweather. Weather. And it's, you know, Maidana in the first fight, Marcus Maidana, who came out with helicopter punches. That should show McGregor enough about how to approach this fight. And I think he's doing the right thing by not bringing in a classic boxing trainer, by trying to be different. And we had Pat Militich on the, on the boxing podcast this week, and he's basically said, if I'm, Con- if I'm coaching Conor McGregor, I come out there be as dirty as I possibly can without getting disqualified. Be as different as you possibly can. It might be the best, best way. And I, I thought it was cool that you said, You'd, you'd hate to see legacy-wise Floyd go to 49-1 and one against a, a UFC fighter with no experience. I'd hate to see him go 50-0 and 0 against a UFC fighter with what? no experience, right? Like, I hate to see him eclipse the, the vaunted Rocky Marciano mark. That's why I'm almost like, love this fight as a circus. Just maybe, maybe it could have been an exhibition. Maybe this isn't like a real fight, right? You know, yeah. but your point about the mindset, about not doubting McGregor, is... is is a big part of it. I, I mean, I don't want to be weird with you, J.A. Like, like McGregor has some cosmic connection to the stars or a Ouija board that he that he plays in the locker room before. I don't know any of that stuff. But what he, the things he says, he does them, and it's almost scary, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. This yeah, is- I mean, my my podcast, Kenny Florian says, you know, to deny Conor McGregor is to deny the power of the human mind, right? He just is not putting anything past that guy. I wonder though. Let's say he rematched Canelo Alvarez for his 50th pro win. I mean, that to me on paper looks like an easier fight to predict. I'm not saying that it's an easier win for Floyd to beat Canelo again, but I think it's an easier result to predict. I just think there are a lot of unknowns with Conor McGregor. And the one thing I'll say about Pat Miletic's point, and that's been my narrative as well. I think Conor's got to get dirty. If there's a headbutt on the inside, so be it. Whatever it takes, maybe a low blow inadvertently. But one thing I broach with Conor McGregor's manager, and you can't dismiss it, is the simple fact that for Conor McGregor, sorry, there's something going on outside that distracted me a little bit. I just think for Conor McGregor in this fight, there are a lot of contractual stipulations preventing him from throwing elbows, throwing knees, and doing anything that would constitute a mixed martial arts move. So, Brian, will that give him pause on the inside to do things that are inherently legal in boxing? 
like dirty boxing, throwing the head around, using his body physically in the clinch, maybe a low blow here or there. Those things happen in boxing all the time. But will Conor McGregor be wont to do those things because he's afraid it might be a $50 million fine? Wow. That's a great point. That's just as important of a point as what kind of referee we get in this fight, right? There's liberal, there's conservative referees, there's guys that break you up right away, there's guys that let you fight. That's going to be very interesting. I got to let you go here, John, but you know I got to let you go with having one more question. We're both old boxing heads. We both love ourselves some B-Hop, and we had to heartbreakingly see him bite off one extra bite more than he can chew when un unvaunted Joe Smith Jr. sent him to hell by pushing him through the ropes on a knockout in L.A. When you look back out after your run of watching and covering B-Hop, what's the one moment you're going to tell the grandkids about? What's the one thing that you're like, I saw this guy ridiculously pull this off? Well, it would have to be the Kelly Pavlik fight, and I know the Kelly Pavlik fans are, are getting out the pen to write the asterisk next to the win because Pavlik was very ill that night and going into the fight. All I can tell you is that going in there as a 3-1 to one underdog at his age against the Kelly Pavlik, who was long and strong and at that point in time was all the rage— it's one of the greatest sporting events and moments that I've ever witnessed as a boxing fan. So I am thankful that I was in the building for that night. Certainly the Antonio Tarver fight comes to mind as well. A lot of seminal moments for B-Hop. I mean, I still, I still am crying in my Cheerios a little bit about those two Jermaine Taylor results. Yes. But, uh, you know, I love me some B-Hop. I've been a little bit disappointed with some of the things that he has said about this Mayweather-McGregor fight because I think if anybody understands what's going on here, and the monetary com the monetary component to this is the big cornerstone of the fight. It would be Hopkins, but uh, happy to see him, you know, move on to his secondary career. Didn't love the way it went out, but Bernard Hopkins gave us more than we ever bargained for. And uh, you know, maybe the next tattoo has to do with Bernard Hopkins. Yes, I mean, how about get, that? Maybe just get his face on my body with the the gap tooth and everything. Maybe we get the B Hop face on the chest or something. Maybe transfer the two hundred nine onto the teeth of B Hop. You know, just combine. Yeah, there you go. Just hey. combine it. I, I, although I do think, to your point, I think he's being anti-Mayweather-McGregor. Only from a business standpoint, he's promoting the Triple G Canelo fight. Some, September 16th that all boxing heads are fired up for. But that is what it is. John Anik, thanks so much for joining us. You can hear his voice, of course, Saturday night, UFC 214 in Anaheim, California. You can hit him up at Twitter at, at John underscore Anik. The Anik Florian pod, one of my favorite listens. Where can they find that these days, John? SoundCloud.com, uh, Anakin Florian Podcast is there. You can also find it on iTunes. And, and Brian Campbell has been on that show twice and will be on again, certainly before Mayweather McGregor. So any of you Brian Campbell fans, be sure to, uh, to check it out. Putting me over to the final whistle. I love that. John Anik, enjoy the card on Saturday, and congratulations on, on an incredible run for you personally. Like you said, nothing's guaranteed. You still got to earn it every day. I know you're going to go out there. I know you're going to do that on Saturday. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Many thanks to the great J.A. for joining us. Lots of interesting storylines there. Just within Jones Cormier alone for 214 on Saturday. Let me bring in my guy, the wise man himself, Brandon Wise, editor, writer, CBS Sports. Got a lot of UFC here to talk about as we get fired up for Saturday. Be wise. How is it, man? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great, man. It's been a busy couple weeks here, but now we finally get the card that we've been waiting for for so long. You know, 212, 213 kind of disappointed us a little bit, but now we finally get that rematch that 
most UFC fans have been waiting for over two years now. Or at least we hope, B-Wise, we get that rematch, right? It's like you don't want to jinx yourself. I was, It's like I was there, UFC 200, so fired up for Cormier Jones, too. And remember that wah-wah feeling when Dana White throws that, that late night, you know, late night on East Coast terms press conference, and you got Jones crying on the mic, a real debacle. Let's put that behind us. Let's get this fight finally before we get there, though, let's look back because it wasn't an important card this past weekend on Saturday. They did a UFC on Fox card. It always sort of raises the rent for the typical fight night offerings. And it was a big comeback from former middleweight champion Chris Weidman. UFC Long Island there at the Nassau Coliseum defeating Kelvin Gastelum by third round submission. The arm triangle choke coming off that three fight losing skid. This could have been disastrous for Weidman. Be wise, how close to the real Weidman, the real All-American, was this performance, this version of him on Saturday night? Oh, yeah. I think what I wrote was that this was the vintage Weidman performance that fans have been dying to see. You know, he struggled in his last few fights, as you mentioned, but now on this one in Long Island, in his backyard, against a guy who a lot of people think can be a contender for a title at some point, either at welterweight, as he keeps saying that he wants to go back to welterweight, (laughs) He can't make the weight there. But now he was fighting against uh, Chris Weidman. And Kelvin Gastelum, you know, he has the power. You see the power every time he's in the octagon. He has that one-punch knockout power. He almost knocked out Weidman here in the first round. But he ran out of time as the bell sounded in the first. But Weidman was able to rebound. He got that minute rest in his corner. He was able to calm down. He was able to gather himself again. And then he just put on that vintage All-American wrestling performance where he just did not allow Gaslam to get up or land any more punches. He got into his full guard, and then from there, swarmed him, got that arm triangle in, ended it. And you knew wrestling was going to have to be the key for him, almost like a return to the basics, right? Like, don't get caught, because that was really the problem. I mean, there was the mistake against Luke Rockhold to lose his title, trying, what, the spinning back fist, and and he straight up obviously just got caught against Yoel Romero, the, the, the third fight. It is what it is against Gegard Mousasi. Probably should have been a no contest. But seeing him return to his roots was key. Seeing him, you know, buoyed by the by the local Long Island crowd. He was only, what, a 12-minute drive from his house. That seemed to energize him. I don't think I've ever seen as excited a Chris Weidman, who's personality-wise sometimes a bit vanilla. Yet you see him dancing in the cage, calling people out afterwards. There's a cynical comeback, though, to this performance, Brandon, that I want to get your take on. And I have to ask you, because I'm sometimes jaded. I still look back at the Weidman wins over Anderson Silva and put an asterisk on there. I really do. I, I, I Weidman had a good run as champ. He has quality defenses over guys like right Machida, Belfort, quality victories. But I'm still a guy who was always a little bit questioning whether he's, he's an elite fighter, yes, but is he a great, great fighter? I wasn't sure yet. You could come back and look at this fight and say, hey, great win, hometown fans, all that. But you fought a blown-up welterweight who wants to go back to welterweight, and this blown-up welterweight dropped you. How do you defend that point if you're in the Weidman camp? See, I I have a hard time uh, disagreeing with you on that just because Weidman is such a good wrestler. He did beat um, – I told you this yesterday. I thought he beat Anderson Silva at the very end of his run. He caught a guy who just didn't really seem interested anymore. Anderson just kind of was dancing around the ring when when Weidman caught him with that punch. And then obviously in the in the rematch, he broke his leg in half. So then he keeps moving up. He keeps he fought uh, Vitor, like you said, Lyoto, like you said, and then he got caught by Rockhold and he just did not look right. I think this fight was so important for him because he needed to feel that win again. 
like you said, he was da- he was dancing around the ring. He never does that. He was playing Born in the USA after he won, and he's sitting there swinging side to side, hugging his dad. His dad is kissing him all over his face. They this was his Super Bowl to win in Long Island like that. Now, I don't really know where he goes from here. That's the problem. Does he want to fight Yoel Romero again? Does he want to have that issue again? Or does he want to fight Robert Whitaker? I don't know if he can beat any of these guys. I think he is right now at the point where he's going to be a top five middleweight, but I don't think he'll be the champion again, just because the division is so stacked with other fighters that are probably better than him at this point in his career. And he's 33. I mean, we got to be honest about that. And at the same coin, it's like he's a really good fighter who maximizes his abilities. I just never saw a next-level greatness to him in the same way when you watch a Luke Rockhold, when you watch a Yoel Romero. They may have their own flaws, which may have cost them in their biggest fights, whether it be conditioning or, or you know, Rockhold certainly took Bisping far too lightly in that rematch and was fought way too arrogantly. But they have the ability to elevate themselves to a next level that I think you spelled out correctly that I'm not sure Weidman does, and he's not getting any younger he did sort of, uh, not boldly, right, because this is the fight game. This is how you mark it. But he kind of boldly called out Bisping in a way that was like, hey, forget that I just lost three in a row and my brand was really hurting coming in here. Fight me next, Bisping. You know, even though you got a, a fight next against the injured Whitaker who's going to be out a little bit, fight me next. That felt a little bit too much of a leap. Like, we got to see Wadman beat somebody else first, right? Right. We definitely do. And, and, I mean, we've talked about this before, but Bisping we at this point think of as a paper champion. Even if you get him out of the way, you still have five other guys at 185 that could be the champion. Like, the division is just insane. And I think that's just going to cannibalize him and get him out of the way. But he'll have a name, obviously. He can draw a crowd. It looks good to beat him. But there's so many names right now. And this is something that, you know, we exchanged in an email exchange. I want to see, like, a tournament. And UFC doesn't do stuff like that, probably because it's gimmicky, probably because people like Strike Force and Bellator sort of relied on those tactics in the past. But there's so many names. And with Bisping being a paper champion who kind of only is looking for big paydays, and with Whitaker, the real next to the throne, being hurt for a while, I almost wish we could schedule a real tournament in a somewhat short format. But but that we know there's a clear path to who's going to get the title shot. It's almost like, okay, Bisping, you want to sit on that belt and have nagging injuries? Do that. We're going to do a, you know, a final four here or a final eight real quick and get and find out who really deserves that because you want to talk about marketable matchups. I mean, if you want to do things like Rockhold Romero, and I know they've been jawing on, on social media, or do the fight I want to see most, which is a Rockhold Weidman rematch. I mean, that first fight really was something in my eyes before Weidman made that mistake. Would you pop for a middleweight tournament considering the depth right now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen to this. This is what it could be. If we let Bisbing stay on the side and then he fights whoever wins this tournament, I guess, is how we'll set it up. This is how our seed breaks down in a quarterfinal matchup. You go Whitaker against David Branch, who David Branch will be fighting Luke Rockhold in September. Then you'd go Yoel Romero against Derek Brunson, which I still think would be a really fun fight to watch. Then you go Rockhold against Anderson Silva, which I think we would all like that just because Anderson Silva is still that much fun to watch in the ring. And then you go Jacare Souza against Chris Weidman, which if you want to talk about a grappling specialist fight, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? 
that's that's a pretty that's a pretty awesome breakdown there. I mean, you get these bottlenecks in these divisions too often in the UFC, and their and their way of fixing it is always, oh, we'll just you know we'll do an interim title fight, we'll do this, we'll do that. I mean, it was almost as if you know I love what Whitaker's doing. I love that he got the chance and then showed against you know against both Jacare and Romero on consecutive fights that I am that guy. I might be the a, a future star. You talk about the lack of star power in the UFC. I might be that guy. But he almost was allowed to jump past guys who probably were more deserving. Now, I know ultimately Whitaker's deserving when you defeat guys with those names I just mentioned. But, I mean, you know, I think Rockhold kind of got a raw deal in not getting any kind of form of an instant rematch after having the belt, losing it in such a freak-like fashion. Maybe you say, well, look, he didn't have the title defenses lined up. That loss was pretty much his fault for taking the light-hitting Bisping lightly. But it's like I felt there were more guys to serve. A tournament in the end would solve all that. It's just, man, it's hard not to get frustrated at how often the UFC cuts off its nose to save its face. It's like not just the women's featherweight debacle, but it's like, man, you know, it's not just Conor McGregor, you know, hoarding the belts and doing his own thing. It's just like an overall there's rules, but there's no rules type of thing. What do these rankings really mean? I wish there was a society where, yes, you know that in the end you're going to lean toward the more marketable matchup. But in the end, you're still going to play the most deserving gets the gets the gets the chance. Is there a rule to put in that could fix that? I mean, is there a way to do that? Do you just live and die by the rankings? We've talked about this before where I just think the rankings at this point, just they don't matter. We can say all they they can say all they want about the rankings. But at, at, at this point, they've proven time and time again, they just really don't factor in, you know, because Rockhold was supposed to fight Weidman originally and then. Two weeks notice, he takes on Bisbing. And I think Bisbing was like sixth or seventh at that point. He wasn't anywhere near the top five. So it's, it's at, the, at this point, the rankings are just so arbitrary. It's a set of people that are just coming up with these, kind of like college football, where <laughs> a bunch of people that decide, yeah, Alabama's number one. They're really good. Florida should be number two. They're pretty good. You know, it's, it's just so arbitrary. But to go back to what you're saying about Rockhold, so he, he probably did deserve a shot against Whitaker or Bisbing. But remember, last year, he was supposed to fight twice. And both times, either he pulled out or he had something else happen. He was supposed to fight Jacare in uh, November. And that one went sideways because of an injury. So now he's finally getting back after over a year's layoff. And he's going to get a shot against David Branch. Who David Branch, people should probably not sleep on. Yeah, don't he's sleep on him. He's a he's a former champion at World Series of Fighting. Um, he's gonna give Rockhold all he can handle in there. And he's a two division champion. When he did leave World Series of Fighting last year, what holding it down at middleweight and light heavyweight, the competition is what it is. But that obviously says something. He looks strong in his debut. You make a good point. I feel like Rockhold turned down fights though, almost in a smart way. It's almost like he figured out the game, and it's like, why am I going to Australia to rematch Jacare when? Sometimes all you have to do in the UFC in this day and age is have a name, be sitting in that on-deck circle, and just wait for somebody to drop out of a fight because it's going to happen. It's like the old aging Rich Franklin thing. It's like, Rich, we're not going to actually schedule a fight with you in mind, but we're going to leave you out in the bullpen, and anytime somebody gets nervous and we need you to fight Vanderlei in a catchweight or, or Chuck Liddell, we're going to plug you in to save a main event. I think Luke Rockhold figured out the business there, B-Wise. you got to give him the credit. Oh, yeah. that's And that's what we've actually talked about over the last couple of months was that Rockhold basically came out and said, look, I'm not taking these big these fights if they're not one going to pay me well enough or two, they're not going to be get me to a title shot. So hope in his mind, he thinks if he beats David Branch this September, 
he's back in line for a title shot against either Whitaker or Bisping. And you can't really say he's wrong. No, 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 no doubt about it. Let's fast forward to the card that's on everybody's mind. Of course, UFC 214. For a lot of reasons outside of just, hey, it's a really loaded card, or hey, this main event has a you know pro wrestling storyline built in. It's sort of just, we all know the first half of 2017 stunk. It, it, it is what it is. Fights fell apart. There were no stars available. The numbers are way down. It's the hangover effect, not only when you're coming off a record year in 2016, but when you went out of your way as the UFC to load up. Far too many undercards. And I, and I say that in, an, in a negative way. Like, you want to give the fan... You want a card like UFC 200 or 205 to pop, of course. You, wanna, you want it to feel like a special event. But I don't... Be wise. I don't know if I need the third and fourth card of the night to be the kind of fight that should be headlining a fight night card or co-main eventing a regular UFC pay-per-view instead of being on, like, UFC Fight Pass or on Facebook Live, right? Like, they went a little bit too far in trying to make 2016 as big as it could be. But coming off of that sale, they're not in a good spot. This is the kind of card that could start a, a new path, you hope. This is a stacked card. Not too stacked, but perfectly stacked in my mind. And man, do we do they need some big headlines, some big star power, some big highlights. They need things going financially in the right direction. Before we talk specifically 214, is this just a perfect storm in a sense of, of, of a lack of star power? Or, like, is this something they could have avoided? Could they have done anything differently the past six months to to change the, the must-see quality of the events? Or are you just hand-strung when Rousey, McGregor, GSP are not available to plug in? Well, I think the hand-strung thing would be more that they have so many cards now that they have to put out. And they have so many fighters under contract that you just have to keep putting out this product that eventually it was going to get diluted at some point. But, like you said, two... 2016 was so big for the UFC that you had the rise of Conor McGregor, the comeback for Ronda Rousey. You know, those brought attention again. And Brock and Brock Lesnar, of course, at UFC 200. But now, I mean, I will say this. 2017, the pay-per-views overall have not been good. But I'm thinking back now, 213's main event wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. I mean, Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero put on a pretty good show. Uh... Jose Aldo and Max Holloway was actually a pretty good fight until, until Max knocked him out. And then 211, we had Stipe dominate Junior Dos Santos, and we saw Ioana Champion look great again against Jessica Andrade. So the cards overall have not been great, and obviously the names, there's not a lot of name recognition or name value, but I will say that those main events have delivered in some form or fashion so far this year. Not a bad way to look at it. So from a critical standpoint, you're saying, you know, let's not run out and yell and get on a horseback and say that the Redcoats are coming and the company's going under. But certainly from a commercial standpoint, you know, from crossing over, and it's the crossover fans that buy the pay-per-views, obviously. That's held them back. Interesting, though, that we're coming up on, like, the end of that landmark Fox deal in 2011, right? It's like negotiations for what's next will be during the second half of this year. So you can expect the UFC to put its best foot forward and load up. I mean, but it's like, this is an interesting time. I don't know if they're going to get the type of financial evaluation they once thought when things were red hot last year or even the year before. Things things have clearly changed, be wise, in terms of where we're headed financially. But in this card, it's going to be a strong one. DC... Jones, two at the top. John Anik just did an incredible job breaking down those storylines. When you look at the rest of this card, what's the one fight you want to see most? Oh, man. The fight that I'm actually most excited about isn't even on the main card. 
I'm really excited for Ricardo Lamas against Jason Knight. The fight that's going to lead off Look at that's that. gonna event against the uh, of the prelim fights. I'm a big fan of Jason Knight. I think that guy is one of the most fun fighters to watch in UFC. Since he lo- after losing his debut fight, he's ripped off four straight wins, and he's looked so good in all of them that I think that guy could be the future champion at 145. That, that he's looked good. This is this is definitely that find out how good he can be fight, right? It's one of the things I wrote it. Check out this week the top ten storylines to know heading into two fourteen. He might be that guy. I mean, he he's on a good run coming off of that Chad Skelly win. This is the kind of step up you want to find out. And, the, and you know, credit to the UFC, the foundation is built on pushing these guys at the right time to find out what they have. That's certainly going to be a good one. Obviously, three title fights atop the marquee. When you look at the co-main welterweight championship, Tyron Woodley. Damian Maya, I think Woodley's like painfully underrated right now. And, you know, he's spoken out a lot about the lack of marketing. You know, he felt like the way that UFC presented those two fights against Steven Wonderboy Thompson as if they wanted Wonderboy to win, as if that was what they hoped. Yet this guy's here just spoiling the party, just like he spoiled the party at 201 by knocking out Robbie Lawler last summer. That came after a 15-month layoff. It's not like he had this long run to build up where you're like, this guy deserves the title shot. This guy won it. Now he's going to, you know, he's going to own this division for years. So there's a lot of people who are probably thinking he's only going to own that title as long as, as, as it takes for GSP to get back in there. That's another side topic. But this offers him, B-Y's, correct me if I'm wrong, a shot to really silence critics and say, this is my title, this is my moment in time, it's not my era, it's not this. Welcome to the Machida era. But this is my moment in time. True or false, he's got that chance here. Oh, definitely. 100%. Damian Maya is one of the best fighters in UFC history. We actually wrote about this a few months ago, that he's one of the best fighters in UFC history to never win a title. And... He's getting another shot. He lost against Anderson Silva at 185. Now he's at 170. He has taken the extreme long road to get here, but now he's here. He's going to get Tyron Woodley. And like you just said, this is Tyron's chance to say, hey, I am the fighter at 170. You guys can say whatever you want, but I will have defended my belt three times after this fight if I win. And if I knock him out, what can you say? You know, I got two decisions against Steven Thompson. And I know nobody liked those fights. That's fine. <laughs> if I knock Damian Maya out, you guys can't say anything to me anymore. Because Damian Maya doesn't get knocked out, you know? That's a great point. That's a great point. And I think, you know, it, it sounds kind of obvious, but it's true. His path to victory is on the feed. It's like sometimes Woodley wants to try really hard to show you that he's that guy, that he's that full, well-rounded guy. But if you try to take Maya down here, you're, you're, you're willingly going downstairs into his dungeon. You don't want to be there. Woodley has really become a well-rounded striker. I mean, obviously, you know, the proof is in the pudding when you watch the Lawler highlights, but he can bang. He's got to bang to win, right? I mean, that that's that's the smart, the safe way, the best way to get there. It's crazy to think that Woodley's defenses so far of his title have been against just complete polar opposites of his style. So this has been, like he has been the like full embodiment of what the UFC wants to be where it's a clash of styles. So if he ends up on the ground, I don't know if he's getting back up. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting way to look at it. 39 years old as Maya. Somehow he's still got it, though. I mean, this resurgence at Welterweight has been fun to watch. He could get off that snide, like we mentioned, of the best to never win UFC gold. That, that club that you don't want to be in, that the URI of Faber club, the club that Bisping was, was lucky for himself to get out of. 
the the another you know the second co-main event if you will of course is the women's featherweight championship no shortage of controversy in how this fight came together with chris cyborg just you know defending now against a, a late replacement here in invicta fc bantamweight champion tanya evinger i got mixed feelings about this fight because it's like on one hand you want cyborg kind of to win right because that's why you invented the UFC if you're the UFC that's why you created this division obviously in the first place it just timing wise Cyborg wasn't ready earlier this year at 208 when they wanted to debut the belt yet the company made the short-sighted decision to go forth anyway taking Holly home off a two-fight losing skid putting her in against respected but really virtually unknown Jermaine Durandamy who wins a kind of sloppy boring decision and then of course you know how the soap opera played out she doesn't want to fight Cyborg she talking about maybe taking time off for an injury now she wants to go back to 135 then they strip her and they come out with that BS statement that all of our champions must you know be in position to defend against the top rated contender really because what about Conor McGregor right he's holding up two divisions hostage last time I checked he's even holding up the whole promotion hostage right now going over to boxing all that notwithstanding if Cyborg wins here Brandon does this fix and put a band-aid on all those other issues I mentioned I mean, it has to, right? Like, this is what they've wanted since the beginning of the year. Um, Chris Cyborg kind of did the uh, Conor McGregor, though. She talked this into existence. She begged the UFC to make the women's featherweight division. And she kept pushing for it. Every day on Twitter, she would say something else about, why aren't? Why am I not fighting Deronda yet? Why aren't we doing this? Why are you running scared? And it just got to a point where Deronda like, I don't want these problems. Get away from me. <laughs> So she drops the belt. She's like, I'm not fighting in this division anymore. And now you get Cyborg to finally fight for the title that she pretty much deserved for the last, I don't know, five years and should have had the belt of in the UFC. But she's going to get somebody who is a champion of her own, obviously at a lower weight class at 135 at Invicta. But this should really just be a coronation for Cyborg. I mean, I really think she's just going to dominate an Avenger and cruise to victory maybe in the first two rounds. She should. I mean, look, we, we can't act like Evinger's a softie, right? Like, she's a 36-year-old making her UFC debut, but she's got some quality wins. She's a very accomplished striker. She's tough. I mean, you know, you watch the preview package for this fight, and you sort of get a sense of, like, wow, Evinger's kind of a pioneer in a sense, been around a long time, she used to train for fights in her front yard, you know, would be, would be willing, wouldn't pass up a fight even if the weight classes were way off because those were the infancy days of women's MMA. Well, you know, the problem here is that everything Evinger does well as a striker Cyborg's the best in the world at that category. So I don't see how this doesn't end in a early knockout. Giving Cyborg her moment, my real problem with creating this division out of thin air is I don't think they've proven, they mean in the UFC and maybe women's MMA in general, that there's enough depth at 145. And I know Invicta has a division and all that, but I don't think there's enough depth at 145 to really justify it. So I know you need to give Cyborg a showcase, so that makes sense. But you know she's inevitably going to end up fighting blown-up bantamweights with names. You know, people like, I'm just going to throw out an example, Kat Zingano. And it's not like I wouldn't want to see a Cyborg-Zingano fight. But I feel like it, there's not a real division here. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, definitely. And just to go back for a second, Evinger, by the way, has fought at flyweight and bantamweight. She's never gone up to 145. Uh... So that is what makes me a little bit worried about that for her. But as you were saying, I think this Cyborg thing is very similar to how the Rousey stuff happened, where Rousey kind of created a division out of thin air just because there were not enough fighters there. She was clearly a shooting star across the sky, and UFC was like, we just got to get her in. We just got to get her in. It doesn't matter who she's fighting. 
people are going to want to watch this. So I think we're going to have a similar thing with that for Cyborg here over the next, I don't know, year and a half maybe, where she's just going to be fighting whoever they can get her in the ring with just because they know people are going to want to watch her fight. But they got to prove that they can market her positively. And I think like that that's a real statement. There's enough of a track record of the UFC like burying Cyborg before she came there, even after she came there. I know you can counter and say, dude, they just created the division for her and pulled a belt off of somebody else to give her a chance. They're doing everything they can to make this work. But at the same time, they've always talked about her in negative terms. Dana Way, Rousey, everybody going back to the, you know, comparing her to a man, the the accusations of PED use. It's like I want to see a video package put out that really says Cyborg's a star. She might be the best woman in the world. She's an incredible knockout threat. She's got crazy tattoos and a really cool nickname. When are we getting that video promo, B-Dub? What's happening here? I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever happen, to be honest. I mean, she might be the best women's fighter ever for mixed martial arts, and I don't think she'll ever get the respect that she deserves just because she's had the steroid allegations. She's had the, the issues with weight in the past. But again, she's probably the best striker in women's MMA that we've ever seen. And I just don't know if she's ever going to get that push. I hope she does. I think she could headline a main event for a pay-per-view for UFC. But I just don't know if they're ever going to give her that opportunity just because they'd be scared of that weight cut and, and making weight. No doubt. And I'll give Cyborg credit since she's come to the UFC. I've seen a much more patient striker. There's still the aggression is still the calling card, but she was recklessly aggressive in strike force in the UFC coming off of that run in Invicta. I've seen a more patient boxer who uses the jab more, who still will circle you and try to flurry, but not just I mean, you, you go back to that Gina Carano fight. Oh, that that's many eons ago, right? That's like years and decades. So it feels like it's in another world, but she was there to get lit up. She just walked face first. We've seen a much Smarter revolution as a fighter. Good to see. This is her moment. She's got to step in. She's got to get the knockout. This is her opportunity. You can't ask, you know, in, next to her recreated home in Huntington Beach, California. You can't ask for a better opportunity at a showcase. This is the card she wanted to fight on. She brought this title, this division into existence. She brought this fight. It's her time to go. But the fight after that, really, Brandon, is the one that, uh, that I'm most excited about because it's just like two names that are going to give you a war. You know it coming in. Third time's the charm here for welterweights. Robbie Lawler and Donald Cerrone. We thought we were going to see it at 205. Thought we were going to see it a few weeks ago at 213. Now it just adds, you know, crazy depth to this card. It's, it's going to be a war. And there's interesting ways of looking at this fight when you consider Lawler hasn't fought since getting knocked out by Woodley last summer. Fought through a little bit of injuries. We don't know exactly where he's going to be mentally, even though he's, you know, proven long-term he can come back from losses. a tough dude. And Cerrone just wants to fight every four, you know, every three weeks if you let him. He's fought three times since that last year. After getting knocked out by Masvidal earlier this year, the UFC kind of put the brakes and we're like, no, don't come back next month. Take some time off. Clear your head. I think the size difference is going to be a problem here. How do you break down the X's and O's in this one? So my biggest concern is going to be Robbie Lawler's chin. Um, after that Tyron fight, he just looked like he had a glass chin after all those wars with Rory McDonald. I am concerned about him being able to stay. Like, we want to see a war, obviously. We want to see these two just go in head first, throw everything you got for three, or for three five-minute rounds, and we'll see who wins at the end of it. But my biggest concern is, like you said, with uh, the size difference. Because Donald Cerrone loves to just go in there and brawl, but he's going to get swung on pretty quick. Lawler's going to try and test his chin. He's going to try and out-wrestle him on the ground. And I, I'm just concerned about 
But my biggest concern is obviously with uh, Lawler's chin and being able to hold up after all those wars. That's an interesting way to look at it because, I mean, he's, he was in wars in strike force. I mean, it, you know, we forget. We got so used to the idea of Lawler as welterweight champion that you almost forget that he was like journeyman brawler for a while. I mean, this has been an incredible evolution, and the miles do add up. You make a very good point there. If Cerrone, the problem here is if it goes to the ground, like you said, it's not going to be in Cerrone's favor. It's almost like Cerrone's got to – Go in there without the idea of a brawl. Go in there with the idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna hit leg kicks from the outside. I'm gonna be really smart in how I fight him. I mean, almost like the the game plan he used against Eddie Alvarez, which was really smart. It wasn't full bore straight ahead. It was a lot more calculated than we've seen. He's gonna have to be that. And I know sometimes you don't get that from Cowboy because Cowboy's like the worst interview in the world, but he's the most honest. He tells you. I don't care about titles, recognition, but you know, I care about basically money. I care about fighting four to five times a year so I can get that money, go out in my RV and, and shoot some stuff up and enjoy my life. It's like, can he put together the game plan? We'll see. I do like Lawler, though, redeeming himself, getting the late third-round stoppage, and it's going to be the fight of the night. It better be the fight of the night, right? I mean, it's got too much potential to be. I know uh, your boy Anik loves the, the odds. This is actually the slimmest odds of any fight on the main card. And just so you know, before Woodley knocked out Lawler last summer, he had four straight five-round fights. So four straight 25-minute fights before he was knocked out in the first round. Oh, Lawler, just, yeah. Just something to think about if you're putting any money down on this fight. What are, Do you have the odds in front of you? What are the Woodley-Maya odds? Because Woodley's on that run of being the underdog in like seven or eight consecutive fights. Well, he's going to break it this week. He's minus 205 over Damian Maya at plus 165. That does make sense. The Ovada. Final fight to, uh, on the 214 pay-per-view main card is light heavyweight Jimmy Manuel. He bangs. He bangs, Brandon Wise. He's going up there against Vulcan. How do you say that last name? Oda Zimmer? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. This is a opportunity in my mind for Jimmy to get in line. I mean, I don't think a knockout here would give him a title shot, although crazy things happen, right? He's more likely to get one against Cormier, although you can argue if Cormier wins, we're probably seeing a trilogy against Jones. You probably want to wrap that up as soon as you can before somebody gets in trouble or retires or walks away. It at least would put him right in line, probably behind Gustafson, to get that shot. It's a great showcase opportunity. Mandel was he's 37, he's pushing it, but he can talk trash and he can bang what kind of challenge, though, is he going to face in Vulcan in this one? Hey, I will say this. Vulcan is one of the toughest heavyweights, that, or excuse me, light heavyweights that we have. He went in and beat up Misha uh, Kruknuff in May, and he just knocked him out in the first round like it was nothing. He is one of those rising stars that the UFC might have just fallen into. He doesn't speak very good English yet. He's not going to be one of those people that helps you sell pay-per-views. <laughs> But he might be one of those new Robbie Lawler types where he just goes in there and, sl and slings those hands and throws down with uh, Jimmy Manuel this week. I think Manuel probably wins like you were saying, but Vulcan's going to give him more of a ch uh, challenge than I think he's expecting. Vulcan made his debut in February of this year with a split decision over OSP. You down, you down with OSP? Yeah, you know me. Well, he got the win over him. That'll be an interesting fight. When I look at the prelim card, the FX portion, the one that I like the best is sort of like a... A crossroads fight. It's the 140-pound catchweight fight between the former Bantamweight of the future, Aljamain Sterling, and the former Bantamweight champion, you know, pound for pound number one. Do you remember the days of the Barrow era where Dana White was getting in front of a microphone, you know, every chance he could to say, you guys don't understand. Hennon Browse won 23 fights in a row. He's the pound for pound number one, and nobody knows it. Those days were true, of course, but those days feel a long, long time ago as Barrow, two and two since losing the bite to 
the belt to Dillashaw in the first time around. The reason this is a catchweight bout at 140 is because, of course, the weight issues Burrell has had in the state of California when he lost the initial Dillashaw rematch when he was hospitalized with issues making weight. I know that there's a lot at stake for Sterling, who bounced back from that two-fight losing streak where we suddenly went, wait, he might not be the guy we thought he was. But for me, for my money, this is like Barrow's last chance. And he's young too, right? Like, this is his last chance to say, I've still got something. There's still room for me. Because he moved up in weight. He didn't look that good at featherweight. I'm sorry. And he's, he's only 30. But suddenly, how quickly, how quickly could we have gone from this guy being pound for pound number one to this guy's washed? Like, wow, right? It just happen- It happens so quick, man. The fight game chews you up and spits you out so quickly. Like you were saying, like you were saying about Burrell, how Dana White was saying this guy's best pound for pound. When's he gonna start saying that about Jimmy Rivera, who just won his 20th straight yes. fight over the weekend? You know that guy's a bantamweight too, and he's probably one of the pound for pound best fighters. He's just not getting his respect yet. But I think Burrell is gonna have to come out and just sling because Aljamain loves to wrestle. He wants to get the fight down. I think if Burrell's going to win this fight, he's just going to have to go in there and try to knock him out quick. He, because he does, if he has to go a long-distance fight, I just don't know if it's there for him. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know either. I don't know what you can expect from Burrell, right? I mean, he just hasn't looked like the same guy. And it, I guess we can't overlook the potential of, of a chin situation, right? I mean, Dillashaw... Dillashaw kind of took his soul in that first fight. I mean, he, he beat him down, but he also sort of beat the fighting spirit out of him. And you can't underscore what that does to somebody. You can't underscore the idea that one day the chin just goes, whether you feel it's too early or not, it's gone. And, and he wasn't the same guy in the Dillashaw rematch. He was flat against Jeremy Stevens. Even the two wins since then, it you know it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same Baron. And I still want to live in the Baron era. I'm sorry. It was my guy for a short season. I don't like his chances against Sterling, though. I, d- I don't like where he's going. I mean, maybe he'll be in Bellator next year for all we know, right? I mean, that, that could be, we could be headed there. We could be looking at uh, Baral Dantes and, uh, coming to you on a Spike TV anytime soon, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, li- listen to this. He beat uh, Philip Nover in September of last year. Philip Nover is 1-4 in, in his last four or five fights. He didn't even knock Nover down. And he only had control over him for a minute and uh, 30 seconds of their 15-minute fight. That's got to tell you something. I mean, he might be able to beat the lower-tier guys now, but I just don't know if he's there for the guys that are in the top 15 or 20 in the division anymore. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even think they're going to have long enough to use his name for the kind of bites. I mean, in some ways, you're using his name to give Sterling a chance to come back here. Very interesting how that breaks down. But final take here, main event time, Cormier Jones 2. You heard John Anik break down all the storylines, but... B-dubs, from your, from your perspective here, two years removed from the first fight, how much will that play a role? And sort of who has the advantage because of those two years when you look back to January 2015, the first time around when Jones won a competitive but clear decision. DC gassed a bit late, but he controlled that fight. He won it. Do you favor Cormier? two years because he's been more active yet maybe adding more mileage or does Jones get the nod for being fresh yet it didn't look all that good against OSP the ring rust could be a real thing it's a real crapshoot right I think the ring rust might be a real thing here I listen I love John Jones he was one of the guys that got me into the sport I remember when he was fighting on the prelims for UFC 200 I mean he has climbed all the way to the top he is as you've told me the best pound for pound fighter ever I just don't know if Cormier is going to have enough to beat him. I assume Cormier is the kind of guy who put this tape on, and he's probably watched that fight a hundred times since that. 
I just don't know if he's going to have the right strategy because his strategy is normally like it was against uh, Rumble was to let Rumble try and outswing him, let him gas himself out, and then he was just going to wrestle him and wait and lock in his submission. Jones isn't going to let him do that. He's got the cardio to survive. I just don't think that the wrestling is going to save Cormier in this one because John Jones is just as good of a wrestler, if not better. If not better, yes. I mean, and do- I think John Jones is going to knock him out. Wow. Wow. You know, do you think it's more of a fatigue-based knockout or more of a beat him down and get him out of there? I think it's going to be beat him down and get him out of there. I think he's tired of listening to Cormier talk about being the champ. I think he's going to go in there with bad intentions. And I think, I don't think this one gets past the third round just because Jones is just wants that belt back. He's tired of listening to DC talk about him like he's the champion. You know, I think DC is his great heart has a great backbone, you know, rallied back against get twice against Johnson when he got rocked rumble, obviously against uh, Gustafson in a split decision five round war. I mean, he's proven that he's going to be there for the long run. That leads me more to believe this one goes the distance because I think the ring rust will be a factor. But ultimately, the point you mentioned is the wrestling. People kind of overlook. They talk about DC fighting the wrong game plan the first time around, getting himself gassed by being too focused on getting Jones back. How about the fact that Cormier dominates everybody on the ground, and he finally met his match. It, I mean, there were times it was even. There were times where Jones was, like, manhandling him. I didn't think DC ever thought that would be the case, that Jones could have that much of an advantage wrestling. I feel like that did something mentally to diminish him, to show him that you have much less path to victory than you originally thought. Now it's really down to being, you know, using your body, doing dirty boxing, trying to close that distance, and it's nearly impossible to close that 84-and-a-half-inch reach distance for Jones. That's that's a giant part of what makes him so next-level, otherworldly. Although Jones, I think, will be not the same prime version, all those things you mentioned, the cardio and in his own backbone and the fact that anytime you've seen Jones bend, he never breaks, no matter what's going on in his personal life or not. He is a stand-up, all-time champion. I just don't see a scenario where either gets stopped and where Jones doesn't win by decision. That's where I think we're headed. And that would be a tough pill to swallow, be dubs for Cormier when, you know, you consider where his legacy could go here with a win. And, and, and going, you know, coming up empty twice against Jones, if that's the case, it is what it is, right? Jones might be the greatest fighter ever, but there's a leap he could make with a victory that he can't get against anybody else. So I have this theory that if Cormier wins this fight and he wins it convincingly, like let's say Cormier goes in there and either knocks him out or submits him before the end of the ra- before the end of the fifth round. I think Cormier retires. I think this is the only thing that's keeping him fighting right now because what else is there to prove if he beats John Jones this time? You know, like I know you said you think that they're going to do a trilogy fight if Cormier wins. I don't think Cormier would want to do that just because he will say, "I just proved to you that I can beat him. Why do I have to go do it again?" That'd be the ultimate uh, sort of heel kind of comeback like, hey, John, I know it's all fun and games, but I really do hate you. And I'm not giving you the chance to come back and win win back your, you know, win back that loss so that you can one day retire and say, you know, I got the upper hand on everybody I fought. That would be an interesting scenario, of course. A lot of lot of storylines and there, a lot of things to look at. I mean, Jones, just the fact that he just turned 30. That's it, right? Like, just turned 30, yet has had a run where he was like the phenom, then the greatest fighter ever, and then the greatest disappointment ever who's tossing, you know, punting away his career, yet he's still only 30. It's like, who knows where this career is going to go? Will he move up to heavyweight? Will he be a two-division champion? It's very interesting as we move forward. Can't wait for this card, though. B-Dubs, thanks so much for joining me as we break this down. 
Many thanks, of course, to John Anik for joining us. Follow me on the old Twitter at BCampbellCBS. Where can they find Brandon Wise? Brandon Wise, 6'5". Yeah, 6'5", believe oh. that. And also, guys, if you like what you hear, of course, on this podcast, like we mentioned, if you see something, say something. Do us a favor and get that rating, the review, the subscription. Go ahead and Apple Podcasts. Let's make In This Corner everything it can be. But for B-Wise and John Attic, enjoy the fights this weekend. We will catch you back in the future. And I got two words for you. We out.